Hi, everyone. This is Madeira, one of your usual co-hosts. Last time we chatted, I mentioned Anna and I would be hosting this episode. Sadly, I won't be with you today because, like many of us in limbo between dissertation writing and job hunting, I'm potentially starting a new job this week. But don't fret. Kiana will be taking my place, and I'm sure you'll be hearing from me soon. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Can You Hear Us? Whether in London or not, we hope everyone's final assessments have gone well, that you're finishing summer term strong, and that dissertation planning is well underway. My name's Kiana. My preferred pronouns are she, her, and I'm one of your co-hosts today. Hi, all. My name is Anna. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm also one of your co-hosts. While Monica and Madeira take a break this week, Kiana and I are excited to be joining you for the first time in Can You Hear Us? And with that comes new experiences, insights, and different views of the world and our position as women or femme of color in international development. Regardless, the Can You Hear Us team acknowledges that we do not represent all women or femmes of color, that we only speak from our own experiences and perspectives, but we are always striving to be inclusive to all women or friends of color in the space. Finally, a big thanks to the LSE Department of International Development for their continued support in hosting this space. Thank you, Anna. In line with the LSE's recent commitment to racial justice and decolonizing academia, as well as ongoing discussions happening within academic departments like ID, we'd like to dedicate this month's first episode about the role racial identity plays in pursuing academic careers within the ID sphere. Much like consulting, academia is yet another potential career path riddled with its own unique opportunities and barriers for women, particularly women of color. According to a BBC report from 2019, over nine out of 10 British universities pay their male employees more than their female counterparts, with the median wage gap sitting at 13.7% in 2018. Moreover, the UK Higher Education Stats Agency reports that less than 1% of 21,000 professors in UK universities identified as Black. And out of those 140 professors, only 25 were women. But March 2015 marked the start of a new movement. The Rose Most Fall movement spurred calls across the UK for decolonization in academic curriculums, as racially diverse academic staff and research fought for much needed inclusion within their own institutions. This episode is an attempt to sustain this momentum and further the discussion within the development academic sphere. Fortunately for us, we have two very well accomplished and inspirational guests who have agreed to speak on their own unique experiences as women of color in academia. And without further ado, we'd like to welcome Dr. Mavishami and Shingira Masanzi. Hello, thank you. Hi, thank you for having me. Dr. Shami is the co-director of the MSc in Development Management Program here at the LSE. She was a visiting research fellow at the School of Advanced International Studies, John Hopkins, and Queen Mary House, Oxford University. Her research focuses on asymmetrical relationships between patrons and clients in developing countries and how connectivity can help change the balance in favor of the poor. Shingi Misansu is a PhD student at the LSE's Department of Law and has worked as a senior counsel in the World Bank's legal department. Her research focuses on infrastructure deal-making by governments in African countries with a particular interest in what leads to good versus bad deals and whether economic and social rights could provide an alternative framework for improving the outcomes of infrastructure investment deals. Please keep in mind that our guest comments in this episode, Shingi and Mavish, are made in their personal capacity and not necessarily those of their employers. 
Mavish and Chingi, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited about this conversation. Uh, just to start off, are you both currently in London? I am. I am not. I'm in Johannesburg in South Africa, where it is absolutely freezing. Oh, oh my God. not expecting that. <laughs> okay, so to start the conversation, uh, we would like to ask the world of you. Why did you decide to enter the international development sphere? And if there is a particular experience that influenced this decision that you would like to share with us? Well, um, I was actually all set out to be an accountant. Um, and then in the summer of my third year of undergrad, uh, I got an internship at a bank uh, in another city and my parents didn't want me to go. Um, and as you can imagine, as a sort of teenager, you know, I think, I guess I was in my twenties, I was very upset um, with my parents. And then this opportunity came around for me to go do a bit of field work in uh, rural Pakistan. And I thought, okay, I can do that. And that my parents were okay with. Um, so I went um, to do that and it was an eye opener. It was extremely fascinating. It was a survey on the political economy of decentralization in Pakistan and whether uh, decentralization had led to uh, improvements in service delivery uh, to the rural poor. And it was just, it was, I mean, I had grown up seeing poverty around me, but this was a whole different experience. And talking to these, these people, you, you sort of really got a sense of how abysmal their lives were when the state was not providing for them. Um, and that was a, a big turning point for me, and, and it got me super interested in development. Um, and I essentially switched major, well, switched focuses, and um, here I am now um, working on international development. Awesome. Thank you, Mavish. That, that is super inspiring. And what about you, Shingi? Yeah, so I don't know when I sort of intentionally decided to enter into like the field of international development. It was never really on, I mean, I knew about the field sort of in very like broad general terms. Um, I grew up in Zimbabwe and we, you know, you sort of hear about the UN and, you know, poverty is around you, questions of development are around you. I remember one of my earliest memories was when I was a child and we had a drought. And I remember the one thing people kept on talking about was food aid, but also for some reason, ETAP. And ETAP was Economic Structural Adjustment Program. No idea what it meant, just knew it was a bad thing and somehow associated with the drought. But in my five-year-old brain, those things didn't necessarily quite make sense. So it was always something, I think development is a field always sort of around me in different ways. Um, I think my interest in it started probably when I was in my undergrad doing my law degree. Um, and there I was interested in things like public international law, economic and social rights, um, constitutions, and this idea of, wait, there's ways we can organize our laws and our policies and our ways of doing things to actually fix problems. And I was interested in the, in the legal angle in particular. Um, and then sort of put that on the back burner for the first couple of years of working. I was doing sort of transactional work in New York. Um, and I think it was really in my master's um, program. So I did my master's in New York. Um, and there's sort of this idea of like, what could working and development look like? What do careers in that space look like? And how does one enter the field started to really become a reality? So that's when um, I started looking at, you know, potential roles and what work in that space could look like. Um, yeah, and that's when I transitioned into the space. Awesome. Thank you for sharing this with us. And another question on that line for both of you, how have your respective identities shaped your academic interests and work? hard one because um, 
I study Pakistan and I come from Pakistan. So, you know, I'm not an outsider when I go to do research. I don't, I don't need an, in, an interpreter or a translator. Um, and I can speak to people one-to-one. And I, in fact, I even work on Punjab, which is the province I come from. So it's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very much an insider. But having said that, it is also, it feels more personal, I guess. So, you know, it's not, I'm not just studying a developing country, I'm studying home. And sort of, you know, I always think of when I when I think of that I'm going to do fieldwork, I was in my head, I'm always going home to do fieldwork. So I guess um, the idea that it is it is my own country that I'm focusing on and my work could in some even if in a very, very small, tiny way, make a difference for the people of my country and help help better their outcomes uh, feels like I'm, I'm making some sort of a difference. And what about you, Shingi? Um, so I would echo my vision sort of and sort of how the work has a personal side to it. So I sort of have a personal stake in what I'm doing. I'm personally interested, invested in the countries that I, you know, have worked on, have lived in, have traveled in, etc. Like for me, there's a personal sort of connection to it. So I would say sort of my identity has shaped my interests um, from that perspective. Um, but on the other hand, they also it's not like I sort of carry that identity front and center, like, you know, I'm from Zimbabwe and I'm doing sort of development work. It's not something that I carry sort of front and center. And even sort of how I came to the work was kind of oblique, right? So I approached development work through the law, but early on my interest in law was a criminal law. I read a John Grisham book when I was seven, decided I loved the idea of criminal law, wanted to be an international criminal lawyer at some point. Um, And it was only much later that the pivot to economic and social rights and sort of transactional law in the development space came up. So in that sense, sort of how I've landed in this particular work that I'm doing has been quite oblique and not necessarily shaped by my identity. But I would say it's sort of part of the passion, what keeps me going. And I think my more specific research interest now, so I think later in life, that identity has started sort of shaping um, what I think is important to focus on, how I approach the work, what things I think are interesting and important and things that I care less about because they don't have that sort of personal connection to me. Very interesting. Yeah, because we were talking about that before, like, does having a personal positionality with the topic make it easier or harder to do the work? Especially, I think, like, we're all doing our dissertations now, and a lot of us have that personal positionality, and it's, we have found it harder to achieve that academic rigor, that objectivity that everyone's, you know, striving toward, but it's, it's good to hear that it's been just a fuel for both of you. That's really nice to hear. I wanted to chime in on the point of like rigor, which I think is a really interesting one and sort of what does positionality mean for like, like your academic rigor. And I sort of see it as, I find that sometimes like a bit of a weird question, right? Because everyone has positionality to their work. Like no matter what it is you're doing, there's some positionality that you have. So I don't necessarily think like my identity as a black woman or as an immigrant or as a Shana speaker or whatever it is, makes my work more or less rigorous just by virtue of that fact. I think, you know, we all carry positionality. What I've actually found interesting in the work that I've done sort of both professionally and academically is that on the one hand, because I personally care about the work, I'm actually more vested in making sure that my work is rigorous, it's excellent, it's sort of battle-tested because I care about the work I'm generating and will it actually work in practice? Will it resonate with the people who I'm interested in um, having as my interlocutors for the work? 
Um, so I think my positionality, if anything, prompts me to be more rigorous and thorough in what I do. But also I think it, um, and it's also picking up on something Mavish said about how um, being able to speak the language of the people you're working with, being from there, there's certain like cachet, there's certain credibility, there's certain access you have by virtue of being from a place. But I also think certain things you get intuitively about a place that don't have to be translated to you that I think actually contribute to making your work more rigorous. So I see positionality from that perspective, A, as something we all have, but for the kind of work that I'm interested in, um, as something that's an asset more than anything else. Can I um, add two small things to that? First of all, it's important to remember that even though, like in my case, for instance, that I'm Pakistani, I'm still an outsider in my field when I go to do field work, because I'm a, I'm a privileged woman coming from the city. And, and you know, I am not one of them. Uh, and they're very clear on that. But, you know, when, when I say it, I'm one of them, it's as in, it's the fact that I can speak the language and I, and I do sort of understand where they're coming from. And as Shingi said, it's... Um, you know, I, I understand the sort of underlying problems that exist and, and the environment they live in. And the second thing I wanted to, you know, it's an interesting thing you talked about positionality and, you know, how you can, can you be objective and, and where, what is positionality actually? There's a, there's a really interesting book by Sen called Identity and Violence. And in that he highlights that, you know, people are getting hung up on their identities, but they forget you have multiple identities. I am a woman of color but I am also an LSC staff member, part of the LSC community. I am also a big fan of um, modern or sort of popular movies. I like a certain kind of music. All these identities allow me to relate to different groups and, and position myself into different categories. So I guess um, thing is it's, it's, and this is what Sen's point is, that violence around identity arises when people get very hung up on a single identity. And it's important to remember that we all have multiple identities and we share multiple characteristics with different people. This reminds me of a book, I think it's called, I think it's from Fukuyama. It's clashes, realization clashes or something like that. Uh, and I think it's quite the opposite that that of sense argument. Is it uh, the clash of civilization? Yes, yes. Yeah. That, that is the opposite. Oh. <laughs> and I, I and I don't think yeah I think it's important to remember that we share a lot of things and a lot of characteristics with people who are not like us and who, who don't look like us yeah. so just because just being Pakistani is not all that defines me as Shingi has highlighted yes definitely thank you so much um, okay so moving on to the next question we'll know that the international development field is often uh, challenging for women of and people of color. So what are the main obstacles you think that female researchers are confronted with in this field, um, particularly in the UK, since we're here? So, I mean, I can't speak for all women of color, but I can say from my experience that I have personally felt no obstacle as a woman of color. And this is not, I, I am aware that there are women out there, women of color who face obstacles and, I, and I'm not saying they don't exist. But as I said, for myself, I have never faced anything. Uh, I've never felt um, disadvantaged or held back because of my color. I think I face certain challenges as a woman but I think my white women colleague faced the same challenges. And, you know, those have to do with the fact that I have to balance this with a family. I have two small kids. So which means that during my career, I've, I've had to go through pregnancy and then childbirth and then kids who still do not sleep um, and, and manage all that. And, you know, we have a fairly balanced household where my husband contributes a lot. But, you know, 
particularly during certain stages of kids' lives, uh, it does fall on the mother. So if you're breastfeeding, as I was, it does demand my presence much more than it does my husband. Um, and, you know, those sort of obstacles, of course, affect um, your career trajectory and um, what you can do, how much. So I, I'm limited in my ability to go to field work for, for the number of years when my kids were very small. Um, but as I said, I, as a woman of color, I have never felt um, that that has held me back. Um, I think Philippa in our department, um, who is a white woman, faces the exact same challenges that I do. Um, and I don't think there are any opportunities that are available to her and not to me, just because I'm brown. Um, but again, as I said, that is my personal experience. Um, and I, I can appreciate that others might have had different experiences. Awesome. What about you, Shingi? Um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. So obviously, I can't speak to um, sort of like researchers in the academic space in the UK, because I'm sort of absolutely brand new to that domain. What I can speak to is sort of um, what I've seen and experienced sort of um, in my working life before joining LSE. And, and there I, I do, I have seen um, and sort of experienced and sort of also heard other women sort of speak about um, different ways in which they sort of feel like the playing field hasn't been leveled. So the sort of first and most prominent example that I sort of picked up on was um, in the space that I worked in, like in development finance, a lot of the dynamics historically have been white, often male folks coming from Europe, the US, coming to work on countries, developing countries, say African countries. So there's always been a bit of a power dynamic there. And how it's shown up, I think, in ways that sort of stood out to me is like sort of you're in a meeting and whose voice um, is heard, who is invited to speak first, who does the room look to for confirmation to say, okay, yes, this is the way to go. Um, and I noticed often that, you know, Black colleagues from the continent, women colleagues, um, sometimes, yeah, we're just not taken that seriously. So they have to do more to gain more credibility. Um, what I noticed also was very interesting was how language also plays a role in it. So in an institution where English is like the language of communication, the dominant language, um, I remember working on something where there was um, a woman from a Francophone African country and her English was her second language. So to me, firstly, that she's working in English in a very technical field, obviously to me, she says you're brilliant. It means that you speak multiple languages and able to work in your second language at a high level of proficiency. But because of her accent and you know, people just sort of don't quite take you seriously. People think stuff like we don't understand or asking. I remember actually another meeting with a different colleague from Ethiopia, someone actually asking her white male junior counterpart to step in and sort of explain like she's a team leader, but a younger white guy and her team is being asked to sort of step in and explain. So to me, things like that are, are problematic. Um, but to me, it's this idea of if you're a female researcher or like economist or someone working in the spaces that I've worked in, especially if you're of color, there are definitely spaces and instances in which you have to do more to gain more credibility. You have to push more, be more forceful to get people to take you seriously. Um, and that sort of happened to me sometimes we were working on a project, you know, people like, who's the lawyer on the project? I'm like, it's me. And then the sort of like, oh, okay. So does your manager know you're here? You know, that sort of thing. And, you know, obviously you sort of assert yourself and you keep pushing um, and eventually people get with the program. But for me, those kinds of things around needing to do more to be taken seriously because of how you look or how you speak when you walk in a room and seeing white male colleagues not having to go through that 
Um, and sometimes I think some of my better white male colleagues are very insistent on being very clear when they walk into a room that she's the boss, or this is the person who's running the meeting, and I'm here in a supportive capacity. So I think some people are aware of that, but that's sort of the dynamics I've seen around that that have made me think that there are definitely obstacles for women um, professionals in the development phase. Okay, so yeah, so it seems like it is more like a like, like inequities happen in more informal realms, right? Like, um, as you say, language, um, group dynamics, um, rather than specifically formal arrangements. I, I, I wonder, I, I'm not sure if, um, I'm not sure that's exactly what uh, Shingi was saying. I think there are some formal um, obstacles also. But, it, you know, listening to her, it's very, so I have been in academia all my life, and I have been very privileged to be in institutions which are based in big cosmopolitan cities, and they attract cosmopolitan um, staff and students. And I, you know, listening to her, it also made me realize, and it was just making me think that A, I'm working in the field of international development in a school which is extremely diverse. So if you look at our department, I think, um, you know, British people are a minority to start off, um, but also. And, and I just want to come back to something you asked Anne about, like, is it just informal or does it show up informal? Um, and, I, I, and I think that's a really good question because it definitely shows up in the informal and in the sort of passing interactions, but it also is definitely in the formal. Um, I think just, for example, something that stood out in my mind recently when um, Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala was made head of the WTO and how there's this mass celebration about finally a, a person from Africa is head of the WTO. Um, and if you look at Gozi's like resume, she has receipts for days, like she is extremely accomplished, but it's in 2021 that we are getting excited about a black person running the WTO. That to me speaks to the structural thing. So think about who's occupying positions of leadership and power in these institutions. That to me is, um, says a lot on sort of on the formal side about what then does that mean for female staff members and female professionals and professionals of color, et cetera. Um, and then also in other things like, you know, pay gap. So at some point in my career, I was flagged as being significantly underpaid, um, even as, you know, the, the analysis like, oh, you're outperforming your peers, but you are significantly underpaid and there's no good reason for it. And then as I did more research, finding out that like, oh, actually a lot of my black female colleagues have gone through something similar and very few of, like, maybe one or two of my white colleagues, white female colleagues have gone through the same thing. None of my white male colleagues had. So it also shows up in those structural things in terms of also progression, who gets promoted faster. All of these things are, to me are on the formal side and they're very prevalent. Um, and just sort of another last example of where I've seen this stuff show up um, in terms of consulting contracts and the pay scales that people are able to negotiate um, and Friends of mine who are consultants, you know, are very clear that they, the female uh, consultants often from African countries tend to get paid less than consultants from elsewhere. Like it's a known fact and people know this because they've traded information on it. So now you kind of know what's actually happening. Um, yeah, so all that to say it's both informal, but also very formal. And then what does that mean for how things then like operate um, on the more formal side of things in terms of the work that's delivered and who is who in the room and in the various spaces where decisions are being made. 
That is actually the perfect segue to the next question and has to do with um, power dynamics, voices, large scale institutions, all of that. So it concerns the debate about critics talking about, you know, the field of international development needs to highlight more local voices, especially when producing knowledge, um, especially if it's females voices. In either of your experiences, how do you feel that <clears throat> large scale organizations integrate these voices, if at all, especially when that knowledge is uh, informing very like tangible outcomes like aid? Um, I'm going to take that first. <laughs> Sure. Um, so I think I think things have definitely improved over time. And sort of what comes to mind is, for example, there's there's a lot of emphasis placed on you know stakeholder engagement, stakeholder consultation, and that sort of become more nuanced over time to place special emphasis on marginalized people's voices, whether that's women or young people or the disabled or the elderly or indigenous populations. I think there's I think so. I think on an intentions level and a broad level, there is a lot of emphasis um, and attention paid to engaging local voices in that context, um, which I think is a good thing. I think, though, that there's obviously still a lot more room and work to be done in that space, right? So just because um, we care about stakeholder consultation engagement, it doesn't necessarily address the issues of, well, who decides what counts as a stakeholder, who has access to that space, what are the dynamics of how we're communicating in that space, whose voices, so you get a thousand people to provide input on something, how do you parse that out to then inform your actual policy recommendations or your aid decisions? So I think there's still a lot more um, that I think we need to do. But actually, I, I also sort of think about it from the other way, which is, I think an easy way of, well, not easy, but like a, a, a different way of thinking about it is who is making the decisions on policies and aid? If it's an external party coming to consult so that they can then formulate ideas and policies. I mean, I think obviously that's the way the world works and I think it's important, valuable, everyone sort of should contribute. But I think if we thought more about how can we get people to come up with their own policies or ideas, like how do we take the point of departure being localizing decision-making in, in sort of the community that is in question, I think that would be more um, transformative. And what I mean by this is that I think working development has tended to be like the flow of knowledge from global north to global south. And I'm thinking about how can we get information to start from global source, so from global south to stay within the global south and maybe filter up to global north, but rather than this knowledge going you know, from north to south, I'm more interested in what we could do differently and what interesting things could come up if we tried to situate ourselves more intentionally, just disrupted the way we do things to start from that global south perspective and stay there intentionally. I think Shingi said it really well, so I, I don't have uh, much to add. Just I want to emphasize what she said earlier, that it's it's sad and it says something very strongly about the fact that when we find that a person of color or a woman is elected to a, a position of power it's celebrated which highlights that it's still the exception it's not the norm um, and sadly i think there'll be a while before that changes um, we'll know when women have 
uh, an equal stake in um, or an equal say on the in the on the table when we stop celebrating it when it's not a big deal that the head of the IMF or the head of the World Bank or the head of um, or the head of state or um, uh, whatnot is a woman when it's not something unusual that's when it, there'll be equality but uh, sadly I think that's a while away. Yes, definitely. So. Uh, moving on to a very related question, um, Mavish, we remember uh, that you talked about the kicking away the ladder chance criticism in one of our DB41 lectures. And you made a very important point by arguing that impeding knowledge transmission from north to south is also a way of kicking away the ladder, right? So it is clear that decolonizing academia uh, requires an integration of local knowledge production and that of the de developed world. So are there any guidelines that you could think about to do this effectively and fairly? Well, I mean, we've been spending a lot of time decolonizing our um, reading lists, right? Uh, and there's been a lot of debate um, between the team about what should go on, what should not go on. And it's, it's quite interesting to me coming um, as, let's put it this way, as an outsider, right? Coming from a developing country. So I grew up in Pakistan. I, um, the first time I came to England was for my master's. So it was, I, was, I was essentially an adult um, with fully formed ideas and um, you know, sort of grounded in Pakistan when I came. Um, so for someone like that, I just, you know, we, we've had long discussions where uh, an amazing piece had to be removed just because, you know, it was a white male and we had to put somebody, either a woman or, a, you know, an author who was of color. And yeah, it's, it is, it, it has been very challenging. So I think it's important to um, make sure that we include um, people of all backgrounds um, in academia, particularly when we're making our reading lists. I'm assuming that's what you're talking about. So when in knowledge knowledge transmission, because it is, I mean, obviously my, um, my take on things is very different from um, somebody who grew up, for instance, in the West, uh, because I grew up um, in, in, a, in a country with large scale poverty and, and a, different, a different background, right? But that doesn't mean that my, my perspective is necessarily better. It's just different. And I think both need to be heard. So I guess what I'm sort of telling a long story uh, and wind, uh, long winded story towards is that it's, I think we do need to decolonize and include voices from uh, what you call the global South. But exactly as I've said, you, we should kick away the ladder. There is some amazing work done by people who happen to be white. Uh, that's not a reason to exclude it. Um, you know, we don't need to reinvent the wheel, right? So we need to we need to build on what's there. But I do I do agree that people of women and people of color tend to have tended to be ignored. So you know, if there's an ex excellent piece written by somebody with a diverse background, they should definitely be included. Um, but yeah, I think we should also keep some of the great work, um, even if it is written by white men. I absolutely agree with Mavish that. Um, it's not a question of you know discrediting or throwing away a piece of work just because it was written by a white man. And I think um, it, it, I think that it does a disservice to the work of decolonizing education and our professional spaces when it's reduced to simply that, right? I think um, to me, like that the project of decolonizing is asking questions around 
what voices, ideas, perspectives have dominated the space. And as we've done that, what voices have been um, obscured? Like what perspectives have we not um, heard? What have we foregrounded and what have we put into the background and not paid attention to? And how do we swivel some light to pay attention to those voices that we haven't heard? And what I've sometimes found interesting is, um, and this is both in the discussion about decolonizing, but also just generally conversations about like diversity and inclusion. Sometimes some people's reflective, reflective reaction is, oh, but we don't want to reduce the quality of what's happening, or we don't want to lower the standard. Um, and I think that sometimes exposes sort of this perception that in these other voices, whether they're from the global South or women or people of color, that for some reason, the scholarship of the work is inferior. Um, and I think it's important to sort of like raise that, you know, bias up to the surface to say, no, that's a, that's a, a misperception because if you fall into that trap of thinking that then you think that the entire project is just about knock out a white man and put in, you know, a woman of color and we've achieved the objective. I don't think that's it at all. Um, but what I've actually found really interesting being at LSE, so I did um, DV431, I audited it. And then I also audited a course on African development, um, which took an intentionally decolonial perspective to um, thinking about development. Um, and there's this like entire rich body of scholarship, both you know, orthodox and sort of non-mainstream scholars who come from global South countries who are sort of the focus of the curriculum. Um, and one person whose work I spend a lot of time reading is Professor Tandikam Kandawile, who passed away, um, I think it was last year, but um, convened this course on African development at LSE before his passing. Um, and reading his work and then finding this like entire body of African scholars who are exceptionally accomplished and have written about so many different things and sort of have interesting fresh takes on development, you know, uh, concerns of the continent. I'm like, I think that to me is what decolonizing is about, is to say, who have we not been listening to? Who has bright ideas that we just don't pay attention to because they don't look a certain way um, or haven't gone to the schools that we, you know, conventionally think of as brilliant, but are actually brilliant and out there doing really interesting work. That to me is what decolonizing is about, about centering these voices and perspectives. And for me, again, being interested in work on Africa, I'm really interested in hearing what African scholars and academics have said, because I feel like they have a better understanding of the context, um, bring entirely new perspectives, just because I think their identity matters in the work that they have, but also their personal stake in it. Um, yeah, that's my two cents on that. I think you're absolutely right. It's quite interesting you point that out, right? Because, um, that's the one thing I noticed also that most of the work that we um, that we read and make our students read is from, you know, just forget whether it's men or women or people of color or not. They're from academics sitting in top notch Western universities. It's it's quite rare to find, um, you know, it's quite rare just sort of 10, 15 years ago, it was quite rare to see pieces of work not generated from the Harvards and Yales and LSCs and UCLs of the world. Um, and that I think is a very interesting and good point that it is, um, there's a lot of very interesting work that comes out of um, universities from around the world. And just because it didn't make it to the top notch journals doesn't mean it's not good. Um, so it is important to yeah keep an eye on um, all the different, as Ashini said, all the different voices and make sure that they're being heard. Thank you so much. We absolutely agree with you. How do you conceive 
women of color academics role as activists in the context of decolonizing academia. Um, and on that note, do you think this process of decolonization is a slow and gradual one, or is it quick and disruptive? I am thinking particularly um, on the on this book by Jan Dress, who talks about um, how academics could also be involved like in activism, um, I think it's called sense and solidarity. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? I don't entirely get your question. Uh, so are you asking whether people of color need to become activists to change academia? Is that what you're saying? Yes, I, I'm asking it like, what do you think that academics, like specifically women of color, uh, should have a more active role um, or should they just keep doing uh, research and that that is, change will emerge uh, eventually? I, to be very honest, I don't know how to answer that question because I think, I think it's a personal choice, right? I mean, I... I may be somebody who is very, you know, politically active and, and by political, I don't mean politics per se, just somebody who likes to be involved in change and wants to institute that and make sure I'm at the center of it, then I would do that. But I, I may be somebody who also, you know, thinks things are fine and um, there are certain things that need to be changed and others don't. So then that's fine too. Or I might be somebody who doesn't want to be at the center of change. Do you get what I'm saying? Um, I remember once meeting somebody who told me that it was my responsibility um, to inform people about, um, about certain um, things dealing with um, sort of my background so that people understood. And I sort of took exception to that because I was like, that's why, why? just because I, am a, you know, of a particular identity or a particular color, why do I have to inform people or why do I have to be the sort of impetus of change? Why does this sort of fall on me? Um, and that's what I would say. I would say that if somebody feels strongly about that, and that means it would be, a you know, it doesn't have to be a woman of color. There's a lot of there's a lot of white women. There's a lot of white men. There's a lot of colored men who care about these things. And they all engage quite well, uh, and they should. But I don't think, as a woman of color, it is your duty or you must, you know, come out and uh, and sort of engage in activism to creating change. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Um, I do think that you know things do need to change, um, and I think they are changing a lot slower than they should. But I think asking somebody of color say or sort of saying that it's their job to just sort of rise up and and just speed up the process of change is also unfair, uh, and that's putting more um, you know that's making their life or putting more work on on that person, right? Um, so if I was to suddenly um, sort of take up this cause, I something has to give. I have to either spend less time with my family and work more, or I need to cut back on my research which I thoroughly enjoy, or I need to take a step back on my teaching. Something has to give, right? There are only so many hours in a day. Um, so yeah, my, my response to that question would be that I think it's it doesn't have to be women of color. It has to be anybody who cares. And there's a lot of white men who do, cha do champion the cause of, 
inclusivity for women and people of color. Similarly, there's lots of colored men who do it also, and there's lots of colored women and white women. So I don't think um, how you look should matter um, for that. So I would, um, I sort of echo what Mavish is saying about, so for me, the, the problem is sort of the language of obligation, right? Um, and, and I agree that I would never tell another woman, a person of color that you should do X, Y, Z. I think maybe in my younger days, yeah. So I think in my younger days, I used to look up at like women in positions of power. And I know I distinctly remember some instances in my career when I was like much younger, um, being disillusioned by a woman in a position of power who didn't push back on something terrible that happened or was complicit in something terrible that happened to another woman or a person of color, whatever it is. Uh, I think having grown up, I think my thoughts have evolved in, in two ways. One is I've come to understand that just because you inhabit a particular body doesn't necessarily mean you are down for the cause. So just because I am a black woman doesn't necessarily mean I am um, necessarily going to be a champion for other black women or for you know un, you know undoing injustices, et cetera. So to not place those assumptions on someone else. Um, but also to Mavish's point is that I, as a black woman, I just want to be right. Like I, there's sometimes when it's just like, can I just be mediocre? Like, can I just hang back and like live my best life um, and not have to carry the burden of, you know, being an ambassador for women from Africa and being excellent and doing all of these other things. Can I just be, um, and I think that's sometimes because like it gets tiring feeling like you always have to be pushing and fighting, etc. So I'm very respectful of the women and the people of color who decide that like I'm sitting this one out. Um, I'm also very respectful and supportive of those who want to be active and to be activist. And when they get tired, like the sort of, you know, so I'm supportive of everyone and the choices that they make. Um, and also I feel like it's not the responsibility of women, people of color, gay people, um, people with disability, all of this. It's not their job to educate other people. The internet is there, there's enough Google out there um, for you to figure out and learn things. So I'm very wary of, you know, sort of placing a burden on somebody else to, to pick up that work. And actually sort of in, I think like last year, sort of when I turned the corner, I decided that actually, you know, who I would like to see being involved more and taking the lead is actually, you know, white men, for example, because I'm like, they're in a position of privilege, they have a lot of power, they can speak to other white men and educate themselves, and they'll be a lot more effective. And my energy is better spent on myself, on other women, on other women of color, like places that give me energy rather than necessarily in spaces that take away my energy. That doesn't mean that I will never be an activist or haven't been an activist. It just means in this particular season, I feel like doing something else and focusing my energies on my peers and investing in them rather than doing the emotional and mental and social labor of trying to change systems. I've done that in the past. I will probably do it at a later stage again. Um, but yeah, I think that's a long-winded way of sort of saying that I think it's a personal choice and we need to be supportive of women, women of color and the choices that they make. Um, and in my personal practice, I try to make sure that nothing I do will bring down another person who might be marginalized. So I'm trying, it's a do no harm principle, but also how can I actively support the people who um, I'm invested in um, and encourage the white men, the people who have you know better platforms than I do to sort of take on different causes. Um, yeah. Yeah, so there's something Shingi said sort of uh, resonated with me that it's also, 
it's it's a form of discrimination to to tell somebody that just because as she said you inhibit inhibit a certain body uh, it's suddenly your obligation or your job um, to um, to sort of champion all these causes um, then you're sort of you're, you're making demands of a person's time and effort and emotional well-being um, just because they are brown or black um, or 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 male female whatever so yeah um, so I don't think I think people who genuinely who care about this and who who, are, who want to engage with this definitely should but I don't think there's an obligation for anybody to do so so on that note, how what like advice would you give to a student that is uh, trying to take on that responsibility, maybe is involved in something like decolonizing academia at LSE? How do you conceive essentially of the student's role in this space and in this debate? Well, there's a number of things you guys can do, right? So it, I mean, you're a very important group because um, you're not you're you're sort of very close to being the next group of academics because you're going to finish your your degrees relatively soon, and then you'll step out into 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 the world. So whether that's sort of going into, I don't want to say the real world. The academic academics are also, I guess, real workers. Um, but you know, whether you're going to sit in the ivory towers of academia and sort of spend your time um, theorizing uh, and have the luxury to just be paid to think, um, or you're going to do something practical, or you're going to sort of engage in um, in, in um, the commercial world, um, you guys are very close to being able to institute change. Um, so with regards to decolonizing academia, I guess you can, you know, we have um, at LSE, as you know, you're all aware, we have the lectures where, where sort of I would come and speak, but then we have seminars, which are open spaces for you guys to bring your ideas. And that's where you, you, can, you can play a major role. Um, so I can spend, a considerable amount of energy and time trying to make sure that uh, my syllabus is inclusive of as many voices as possible. But there's only so much I can reach because I'm just one person and there's we're a team of three or four people, right? There's only so much we can reach. But you guys come from all over the world. You are aware of all sorts of different ideas and literatures and voices out there that we may not know. So, you know, that's how you can play a major role. You can bring it to, to our attention, you can bring it to your um, to your seminars. You can have you can sort of um, take it to your lectures. You can if there's a particular piece that you think is really great from your home university or you know some some uh, some other university, you should send it to to the lecturer to have a look. Um, I can guarantee you, academics are very open-minded people. We have to be because our whole job is based on uh, on learning. Um, so we're, we're, you know, we're constantly learning new things, trying to sort of update our ideas and changing. That's what makes a successful academic. The unsuccessful ones are the ones who get, you know, sort of tied down in their rigid ideas. They, they don't do very well because, as I said, the academia is all about constantly changing and learning. Um, so, yeah, I think um, a lot of students underestimate how important their um, background is and the, and, and the knowledge they bring to the classroom. And this is what I say to students right at the start of every course, that you will learn a lot from, from your lectures, but you will learn tremendously from your peers because you all are coming from all sorts of different backgrounds with very interesting experiences. Um, and, and you're bringing rich ideas, which you know three or four lecturers cannot possibly have. 
I, I would um, echo all of that. So I'm extremely optimistic about students, about young people. I'm always telling my nieces and nephews that the youth will save us. Um, and, and for me, I think it's because what well, a students, younger people have a particular energy, but also I think a fearlessness. Um, and the thing that sort of, you know, um, an example of this that sort of stands out in my head. So Fee Mathfall started at the University of Cape Town. I was at UCT, University of Cape Town, I don't know, like, I don't know, years ago, a long time ago. The point is the issues that the, the fees must fall students raised were the exact same grievances we had. So fees, the curriculum, progression of academic staff, just a lot of things were problematic about the school. And we would, you know, raise these issues, but you know, the administration just waits for you to leave and then, you know, the issue will peter down. But this generation of students was like, no, we're actually done with this and we're going to bring everything to a halt and we're going to make an absolute ruckus and like look at what they've achieved. Um, so for me, I think students play such an incredible role. Um, and I don't think the work of, you know, decolonizing, moving things forward, all of this stuff, all of that stuff is not going to happen without students playing an active role. And I think it's asking questions, making people uncomfortable with the questions that you've asked, because oftentimes when we're uncomfortable about a question, it means something is being asked that's shaking our comfort in the status quo. And I think students are primed to sort of dive into that kind of thing. I think that's part of what the academic enterprise is. Um, but I think even sort of outside of school, when we move into like jobs and our new in spaces that we're working in, doing that same function there, um, I think is critical. And I think is sort of how we'll move forward. Um, and you asked the question about sort of what advice would you give to like students or like folks who are trying to um, move the needle along. I think sort of from my um, experiences, what I, what I benefited the most from and what I would advise someone to do is to find mentors. So people who've gone in the struggle, struggle um, ahead in the past and learn from them. Um, I know sort of my, you know, earlier days in my career, there'd be sort of issues I'm pushing and then speaking to older colleagues who are like, oh, we fought this battle before. This is how we lost. This is how the institution thinks about it. These are the policies and the ideas that are entrenched and this is where the, the battlefront lies. Um, and that sort of helps to like leapfrog and move ahead. So I think finding mentors and people to help you strategize and think about how do you actually achieve the goals that you're trying to achieve um, and also building community. Because I think the, the part of the reason why I said like I, I wouldn't place an obligation on someone to be an activist is because that work is exhausting. And even as Mavish pointed out, it means something's gotta give, you're taking on extra work. Um, but having community helps um, because I think there's strength in numbers, there's energy in numbers, there's solidarity um, in working together towards a common cause. So not going it alone, but trying to find that community and drawing in each other's strength. Um, and it also means that when you're tired, someone else can take over and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, so that's what I would say. And I think just the last point in this, that I think you asked also earlier about whether change of this nature is slow and gradual, or like quick and disruptive. I think it's actually slow and disruptive, um, but that's why I think it requires a that sort of strategic input from people who've gone on ahead because it is slow and it requires sort of this incremental iterative stuff, but it's also disruptive in that if you think of fees must fall, it will sort of go, could something be more disruptive? When I remember what UCT was like and then seeing what these kids were able to do in a matter of months, it was disruptive, but it's still slow because it's, um, it still takes time. So I guess the last piece of advice would be to say to someone, 
it's going to be a long slog and to sort of have that long game mentality when you go in um, on whatever issue you're passionate about, I think is the way to go. Brilliant. Navish, Shingi, thank you so much for coming on. These are very valuable insights and you leave us with a lot to think about and ask ourselves regarding the ways in which we learn and the ways in which we take all this knowledge to the ground as development practitioners. All right, and now we're going to do the final little fun event. Uh, Monica is going to spin the wheel and just a lighthearted question for both of you. So Monica. Ooh, best film recommendations. Shingi, you go first, because mine's probably going to be a cheesy rom-com. <laughs> <laughs> or a horror my... film, one Ooh. of the two. <laughs> mine is not going to be much better. Um, I guess one of the things I watched that I enjoyed most, and, and this is definitely in the realms of like trash, this is not at all intellectual or anything, but what got me through lockdown was Tiger King. So oh, it's not a film, that. but it's a docu, it's, well, it's a documentary, it's on Netflix called Tiger King. Um, if you haven't watched Tiger King, you need to get in on this ASAP. Is that the one with the guy who has the lions and the tigers? Right. Yes, I've seen that. Bits and pieces. It's excellent. Um, there's actually a part, so I listened to the podcast first and then later on I saw Netflix did the show, Pure Gold, um, just pure, pure gold. So Tiger King would be my recommendation. Okay, well, let me think. I, I was trying to think if I have a favorite movie I've been watching. Um, I saw Apollo 13 recently again and I thought that was just brilliant. Um, but what else? I, I have to say I'm also, I, I'm a sucker for uh, short movies. Uh, so I don't know if you guys have seen Megalodon, the, the one that came out, I think it came out like three years ago, because I went and saw it in cinema by myself. And I saw, I've seen it like three times since, and I sort of rewind the shark scenes and keep watching them again. Um, so yeah, I guess those would be, I mean, if you're into sharks, I would, uh, <laughs> I would recommend those two. Um, but is there, what else? I mean, I, I'm trying to think if there's some sort of intellectual sort of great film I've seen that I would recommend, but no, all I can think of is like Wedding Date and uh, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. So yeah, I don't have the best taste in, in, in film. I like those answers. They're very niche, especially the shark <laughs> one. I wasn't expecting that. Megalodon, I, I, I highly recommend that. My husband refused to go with me to the cinema. I had to go no. myself. Well, thank you, both of you. That was extremely insightful. Also, I think now that we're all writing our dissertations, I feel like this was a very grounding conversation, gave a lot of inspiration and energy to kind of move forward. So yeah, thank you so much. And uh, for everyone listening at home, thank you for listening in to Can You Hear Us? My name is Kiana. And my name is Anna. We'll see you next time. We would like to thank our guests, Navi Shani and Shingi Masansu for coming on today, as well as the LSE Department of International Development for supporting this space, especially the LSE ID Communications and Events Manager, Municipa Patel, for all her help in promoting this podcast. Finally, to our team for researching, recording, and editing this episode. Our music is provided by a Sunbank, and our logo was created by Gorka Abad. See you all next time. Bye.